this week in the markets. Gold closed at the highest point in over six and a half years, over $1,500, while silver finished near 17. Well, welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just a pleasure to be with you on this August 9th, episode 708. So, everyone's starting to get excited about the precious metals after years in the doldrums. Especially one of my guests this week, Arch Crawford, who says, if the breakout holds, we could see 2000 and above on gold. And Dr. Lieb joins the show. He's expecting for gold, and I quote here, to adjust very, very, very high. Good news for precious metals investors. He thinks that we could have something like $270 trillion in national debt when everything's tabulated. So things could really get exciting for gold. And Robert E.M. wraps up the show with his latest must-hear report. Be sure and call in to the Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 514049. That number again, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 514049. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. Visibility virtually unlimited yet again for the 11th consecutive week running on the precious metals sector. Investors very excited about the prospects of a new rate cut cycle and folks are still adjusting in money managers institutions as well portfolios to reflect those new expectations. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal remained at lofty levels, finishing higher $51, 3.5%, closing at 15.08. Silver blasted higher to 17.27 before settling at around $17, while palladium picked up 15, ending around 14.19. And even platinum added $11, 2% at 864. Black gold, though, was off $1 at 54.50, 2%. The top story driving the markets this week while investors continued to search for gold and lifeboats amid increasing geopolitical tensions, first in the Persian Gulf and inflationary rate cuts. Plus, news that the U.S. could increase tariffs on the world's second largest economy might be detrimental to the global economy. Turning to news on the domestic economy, the Labor Department said on Friday the producer price index was up two-tenths of a percent last month, as expected by economists' forecast, plus the July producer price index increased 1.7%, registering the same number as the prior month, tame economic output. Bottom line on precious metals. Well, as we've been hoping, the precious metals rally continued this week. It's looking a bit extended, but hopefully the new uptrend will continue. News that the Bank of International Settlements, of course, is now accepting gold as de facto currency. Of course, good news. So the deep pockets now are also chasing the same market the rest of the world is starting to get interested in. Moving on to the Wall Street report, mostly cloudy skies hovered over the New York Stock Exchange as investors continued to adjust portfolios to reflect lower GDP forecasts. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow was off only 201% at 26,287. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 finished at 29.18, off 13, 
while the NASDAQ was off 45 at 79.60, just below that 8,000 mark. The top headline moving the markets, technology stocks were mixed this week on news that Washington was delaying a decision about allowing some licensing between U.S. companies and Hawaii. But shares of Lyft enjoyed better results, sending shares higher, topping second quarter estimates on revenues, and better than expected results. Plus, the Mad Money host said investors were unnecessarily nervous about the possibility of lower rates from the Fed. However, the U.S. president did announce a 10% tariff on our largest trading partner, effective September 1st. And, of course, they retaliated. The tactics were viewed as somewhat of an increasing pull, if you will, on the economies, or it could be. But so far, again, it really has been little than saber-rattling. U.S. shares, bottom line. Well, in a recent show, CNBC's Jim Cramer noted the U.S. economy is better than... The U.S. economy is doing better than the stock market is reflecting, noting this might be a fake-out. He just doesn't see a 2007-2008 scenario. He thinks more buying opportunities around the corner, and I'm inclined to agree with him. I don't see any reason to panic here. In fact, I see lots of signs of capitulation in the Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P. Wouldn't be surprised to see higher highs in the months ahead. Coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio. Thanks for choosing GoldSeek.com Radio as a trusted business and investing news source. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today Arch Crawford. Arch has been at the helm of Crawford Perspectives for going on half a century. Welcome back, Arch Crawford. Oh, thank you. 42 years this May and close to one of our favorite locations at our Ancient Artifacts Preservation Society, Sedona, Arizona. Tell us about this remarkable land in which you uh, relocated and now call home. Well, I'm in Tucson, which is, we get up there quite rarely. Of course, we've done it a few times over the 20 years I've been here. Yeah, it's a pilgrimage, isn't it? I mean, it's such a remarkable area. Yeah, let's jump right into the markets. We had the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 hit all-time record highs. Just glorious breakouts from a long consolidation, uh, the NASDAQ over 8,300, well over 30% above the uh, year 2000 peak. Of course, that's in nominal terms. The thing is, all these uh, have hit the higher highs. The momentum is poor and uh, actually giving sell signals, several of them already, just because it's, the momentum slows down, it gives almost, it gives a sell signal on the, on the MACD. And then sort of sideways is a little bit, doesn't lose ground much, and then goes to another slightly higher high. So I don't think the action is very dynamic at all. We're calling now for a minimum target of 10,000 on NASDAQ in the next 12 months. Your thoughts on that target? I think we're topping around Labor Day, and we'll be down hard in January. Okay, um, can you give us some of your um, data that's supporting that idea? Uh, yeah, the uh, clip series in October looks fairly rough, too. The Mars-Uranus crash cycle, there's every crash that has occurred the last 110 years has occurred in the same 40% of the, of the 
relationship of Mars to Uranus. But that happens every two years, and we certainly don't get any crash every two years. It's just that the, you require like a technical setup in addition to that portion of the cycle. And uh, we are uh, long overdue. I mean, we, we've got this expansion going there, the longest in history. And that was because of how slow it came out of the uh, crash period in 08 has caused it to last longer because it was so slow. I think the Obama administration had caused, had put in so many restrictions on the free use of uh, capitalism that it slowed things down considerably. And he was even saying you can't have more than 2% growth anymore. And of course, Trump got in and he uh, relieved us of some of those restrictions that uh, were anti-capitalist, and of course markets took off and the economy took off and we had the lowest unemployment, so uh, it's worked out fairly well despite what people say about him personally. I do have to note, as uh, as a trained economist, I can tell you that the current administration, I think, has done much to resolve the Smoot-Hawley Act hypothesis that during the Great Depression it was the tariffs and trade barriers that were at the heart of the economic downturn, you know, the horrendous Great Depression. And over 25 years, as I know you know, for the market to have a nominal recovery from that 1929-1930s peak in trough. Yeah, exactly. What I find fascinating is how uh, everyone was bracing, I say everyone, uh, much of the pundits online and the blogosphere and others, even within the mainstream, for an economic collapse following these trade barriers. But it turned out to be a non-event, I think. Uh, We think part of that is the the marginal size of these uh, trade barriers on our largest trade partner, of course, Beijing. And I would also point out that, that you might recall the Canadian... Uh, lumber tax actually increased the price of a home, new home construction, by approximately 11%, at least temporarily. So, I mean, there was some impact there. But on the whole, it seems to have been quite U.S. friendly. I mean, at least if we use the stock market as a barometer, as I think many, many people do, a six-month forward-looking barometer. Another negative on the uh, intermediate term is that the most of the gain this year has been from five stocks. You say on five stocks? Five stocks. So we're, are we referring to then the FANG stocks? Facebook, Amazon, and some people toss in Netflix in there and, and a few others. Well, at least two of those are favorites here of my Alpha Stocks newsletter, and they've done remarkably well. And one of our picks this week, incidentally. Well, Amazon has the greater capitalization, I think. It's over a trillion. I think it's the only one over. Well, there may be two of them now, though. You know, Bezos has really positioned them in Amazon in so many different ways to dominate global retailing now, especially domestic retailing. There's so much going on there. I don't see how any institution or money manager could afford 
not to have some exposure to Amazon. So as long as he remains, you know, the Teflon Don of that online retailing space, you're concerned about the breadth. You think the breadth of the market is just not sustainable. Right. We're looking at the buybacks. So are you keeping an eye on the just record number of amount of money flowing? In? And then, of course, with the lower debt, with rates, of course, dropping this week at the Fed, probably beginning a new downward cycle. Against that backdrop of free money now or cheaper money entering the market, I mean, these companies, they can continue buying back their shares by issuing virtually free debt on the market. Do you have any comments there? Uh, yeah, I think we're getting pretty much out of line again. But the, the thing that saved us was the huge, huge QEs where trillions of dollars were pumped into the world's economies. I think Japan was in it, Europe was in it, we were in it, uh, the typical trilateral group were all uh, pumping like madmen. And uh, a lot of that never got into the public, but it, it did make it, things like stocks and, and a, a lot of other instruments have gone way beyond what could reasonably be considered. Well, it certainly does seem to echo what we saw in the late 90s. I think you'd probably agree. I mean, we're seeing an unbelievably favorable business environment. We certainly had at the time. We also had, of course, we're on the coattails of military victory, you know, in the early 1990s, or let's just say it was a strategic locational victory from a military perspective to secure, just to keep that safe, to police that area. So I think at least the markets, I'm not saying personally, but the markets viewed that as a positive for the Western world. At the heart of our economic miracle here is inexpensive petroleum. Although we are one of the world's biggest producers, as is Russia, we rely heavily on exports from oil-producing nations. You know, that clearly led to this in part, and then the technological revolutions that were underway in Renaissance in Silicon Valley spread all over the world. Um, so that certainly helped, too. Now we're kind of on the cusp of a completely different situation, but the markets look equally lofty. And you seem to think that that's just going to end this year then. Okay, great. Let's move on then to the precious metals and commodities. Any thoughts there? We've had a remarkable turnaround. Of course, silver reached a 95 level on the gold to silver ratio. That's a stunning discrepancy between what was traditionally around 20 to 1 or lower. Um, so we saw a big bargain opportunity there. Any thoughts in the area and on the remarkable breakouts in the XAU? Specifically, in our June 3rd newsletter, I wrote that the gold, this is the first significant gold buy that we have had in several years, and add to positions now, June the 3rd, and that was before any kind of breakout. That's impressive, because it certainly uh, was ahead of the curve. I think you, everyone would have, yeah, and we're hearing calls now for 1500 and once we eclipse that, it's upwards and onwards, as they say. 
That's going to be music to our listeners' ears. Arch, thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology vault chain gold and silver are 100 redeemable through one gold for physical precious metals delivered to customers doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs as a special offer and for a limited time only one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums one gold.com is secure and accessible 24 7 on any device offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click vault chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins rounds or bars offering clients peace of mind and full transparency don't get left behind remember to bookmark onegold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today remember one gold Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion. By 2021, Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value, easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's shareholders. Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, many jewelry. Gold Seek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Thanks for choosing GoldSeek.com radio as a trusted business and investing news source. Dr. Stephen Lieb has over a quarter century of investment experience. His focus is on the growth stocks, but so many other key areas, including the precious metals, economics. He's the former editor of Personal Finance. That was one of the most widely read financial newsletters, over 100,000 subscribers at its peak. Welcome back, Dr. Lee. 
Thanks, Chris. And incidentally, I have an end of August deadline for my uh, gold and China book. That may be my final one, but China means for gold. It means very good things. We're clearly interested in hearing your thoughts. It's been a fun several months after several years in the doldrums. People are getting rather excited, you know, with 18 central bank rate cuts in just the past few uh, months this year. And then, of course, the Fed now beginning what appears to be a new rate cutting cycle. Tell us more. Well, I think, I mean, we've been through rate cutting cycles before and things like that. But I think one of the big events that uh, escaped a lot of people's attention was a uh, change in direction by uh, the the Bank of International Settlements, BIS. Recently, I mean, BIS is not not an organization noted for making uh, uh, headline uh, announcements. I mean, you really have to read over a couple of hundred pages. And to be honest, I doubt that I would have seen the relevant uh, paragraphs had I not read something else that had, you know, kind of directed me toward it. But uh, what they did very recently, Chris, is uh, for, for those that might not know, and admittedly that a couple a few years ago that might have been me, but uh, for, for for those that, that 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 might not know, the Bank of International Settlements is really you know often called the Central Bank of Central Banks, and they uh, set rules that uh, banks tend to follow, that other central banks tend to follow, and pass on to their uh, member banks. And um, back back in 2013, if, if, if you were following the gold market, you, you, you might remember that uh, gold, it, it, it sure surprised me. I mean, it, it took a dive. It really did. I mean, I think a lot of people expected it to go back to its high. I have to admit, I was one of them. And, and, and a lot of my reasoning at that point was based uh, uh, on the fact that I expected the BIS to come out and say that banks on their balance sheet could treat gold as if it were cash. It was a riskless asset so that you don't have to take a haircut when you're calculating ratios. How much risk do you have? If you have gold on your bank as a bank asset, it counts as no risk. And just like cash, the Bank of International Settlements did not do that. And and you could just sort of see, I mean, it wasn't apparent what they had done. Again, I mean, they, they write white papers every month, and I mean like 200-page white papers, and it was hard to miss. It was hard to see that they weren't doing what they were expected to do. But this time around, in, in I think, March, they absolutely did that. They said that gold and cash are the same. And that's a very, very big deal because what it means is that uh, 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 commercial banks, uh, lending banks, etc., can now hold gold on their balance sheets as a substitute for cash. Now, you know, there's good and bad to that in that gold can go down, but uh, it can go up. And if you look at gold from any long-term perspective, and, you know, don't compare it to the stock market, compare it to cash. And, you know, the numbers, let's say, from the mid-1920s, admittedly, that's almost 100 years, but the numbers are so uh, compelling that um, – they, they, they tell you why banks might want gold. Uh, you know, during that period of time, gold, I think, went up, I don't know, two or three-fold, something like that, whereas cash went down by 95%. 
So, you know, from any longer-term perspective, you want to have gold on your balance sheets. And that could be one of the main reasons that gold is really taking off here. And this is particularly beneficial to China because, at least according to what I read, I mean, China is very opaque. But from what I read, uh, China has by far the most gold in the world, not necessarily their central bank. I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not one of these people that, you know, really believe in conspiracies that their central bank is, you know, deliberately understating how much gold they have, although I, I don't dismiss that. That could be happening. But it really doesn't make any difference. If, if, they're, if, they're, if the gold in their banking system uh, and, and held by their major banks amounts to, you know, what people think could be up to twenty or 30,000 tons, they are sitting in a wonderful position. And, uh, you know, one of the theses of the book is that um, China wants a, uh, a gold-backed monetary system. Uh, it doesn't mean that they want the yuan to be at the center of the system, but they want it to be part of the system. They want other currencies to be part of the system. It's sort of like an, an SDR, but it will be backed by gold, uh, kind of a floating gold uh, 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 rate, you know, because it will be used in all trading transactions, and there's just not enough uh, additional gold in the in the ground to assume that you'll, you know, be able to add a lot of gold to what's there that's going to be backing up the system. So gold prices will rise. And they could rise. I mean, it could be, you know, an incredible bull market. There's just not that much gold in the world. And uh, not all of it's going to be available for uh, central banks uh, uh, to back international transactions. So gold is going to have to go up to, you know, very, very, very high values. This is not a call for tomorrow. It's not even a call for this week. Uh, indeed, it wouldn't surprise me if, I, if gold went back down to 1350, 1360. To go much lower than that, though, actually probably would surprise me a little bit, I'm being honest. Um, but uh, this could be the start of something big, what we're seeing right now. Uh, again, not a straight up bull market, but this could be the start of a sustained. Uh, a point of inflection, if you will, in, in the entire monetary system, which I just think is totally out of whack. So, you know, what, what informs this thesis is that China has been doing some very, very good things, and the United States has gotten incredibly sloppy over the past 30 years or so. Uh, the United States, in my opinion, was the greatest country uh, civilizations have ever seen uh, probably for the first generation or so after the Second World War. It was just a fantastic country. But since then, we've really been slipping. And uh, China, I think, took lessons from us, to be very honest. Uh, lots of things wrong with China. You won't catch me living there, though my uh, son, uh, my son-in-law, my son is married to a Chinese uh, uh, girl who is my daughter-in-law. But um, I'm sort of happy to see that. But he means he can go back. He can go to China if things really got bad here. But you wouldn't see me there. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't particularly like authoritarianism, even writ small, never mind writ large. But I think that uh, China is doing some very, very good things. Uh, I think we're very lucky, to be very honest, that uh, 
I don't believe this is a country that aspires to control the world. I think that they want to have a lot of control over uh, the East and developing countries. Uh, I think they uh, believe that they're going to need tremendous amounts of, uh, of commodities, which is something that informs their own uh, need and, and, and desire for a gold standard. And if you go back, Chris, and, you know, look at some of the statements they were making in 2009, and this is, you know, this is a matter of public record. The uh, PBOC chairman, I never can get his name right, uh, actually basically came out with a statement. He's saying, look, we want a monetary system which includes a basket of currencies like the SDR and is backed by uh, a commodity. And the only commodity that would fit the bill would be gold. So, you know, I think that that's sort of where we're headed, and I think this might be informing uh, some of the reason why gold is headed uh, uh, higher. And if it is, if it is the fact that banks have finally caught on that gold is as good as cash as far as, you know, calculating all these necessary risk ratios. I think you covered something we've talked about, so I won't harp on it too much, and that is the importance of learning from our trading partners. And I'd just like to quickly point out how many coaches out there uh, get angry at the opposing team after they've lost a match or if they're in a series, a tournament, uh, let's say it's a tennis tournament, let's say it's a baseball series, uh, whatever it might be, they get back to the drawing board, don't they? They get bad ones don't. The bad ones just get angry and, uh, you know, sulk and that's, you know, and, and they don't end up in the profession very long. You're, you're, you're so, so right. Yes. Just as a, you know, parenting lesson, I mean, my two children, you could not believe, one is pretty bright and, you know, tended to get very, very good grades. And I said, Willie, one time to him, I said, when he was disappointed that he didn't get like 100 on the test, I said, Willie, the only way you're going to ever learn is when you don't get hundreds, because that's when you pick up the book and figure out what you didn't understand or what you did not know. And when you win a game in, in, in baseball or football, I'm agreeing with you 100%. You don't really learn that. Well, you can learn. I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm being extreme here, but you really learn. You're, you're so right. You're absolutely right. I agree. I couldn't agree 100 any more than I do. I mean, I've used that example many, many times. What you're saying. Instead of pointing fingers, uh, that's what I'm hoping we can do here is kind of grow up a little bit like you, you say our kids need to do. <laughs> we're A students. We may be an A minus student right now. But um, what we're going to do is learn by observing those who are doing a little better. That's what the Chinese did, Chris. In my opinion, they saw what a great country we had. I mean, through 19, before we went off the gold standard, when we went off the gold standard, everything, everything went kablooey. But, you know, the example that I use over and over again, not just in a book, but, you know, when we, you're too young to remember, but when Sputnik was fired by the Russians and circled the earth, we saw that. And we saw that as an opportunity <coughs> to really step up and really improve. And you know what? In about a decade, in about a decade, a little bit more than a decade, we had a man on the moon, walking on the moon. And, 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 you know, that's what we were able to do. Now we see Huawei coming out with great chips, taking the lead in 5G. So what do we try and do? Shoot down Huawei, which is crazy. 
And, you know, we'll rely on some other foreign country, uh, you know, uh, in this case, I guess, Sweden and Finland with Nokia and Ericsson. This doesn't make any sense. If we had tried to shoot down Sputnik when the Russians launched it rather than use it as a sort of motivation to get on our horse and take the lead, you know, it'd be an entirely different world. I, I couldn't agree with what, you know, I think we're totally agreeing with one another, with each other, rather. You could either take it as, you know, punishment and go cry in your room or take it as a motivation to get better. And that's what we used to do. And and what happened to that can-do spirit that we used to have in this country? It's it's not here right now. So I'm hoping that we can get it back. I, I, I really am. And I, I will vote for anybody that I think that can bring that back. Someone that really they can bring back that fighting spirit to our country. Okay, so we've got a battle plan. We have a game plan. We've got a page, you know, typed up. It's the executive summary. Here's what we need to do. So fill in the blanks here for us, Dr. Leap. Well, I think that we basically have to, I mean, where this country, you know, really went off is when we went off the gold standard. And that sort of gave us our cake and eat it too. It meant that we could print as much money as we wanted, that we didn't really have to worry about paying things, paying for things. We didn't have to worry about being frugal and planning. And, and sort of instant gratification became the rule of the day rather than long-term planning. We, you know, the, the projects that, that the, the three projects that I single out that took place in the context of that generation right after the Second World War are not projects, but three examples more, more, more like it. The interstate highway system. That was about a 40, 50-year project, and most of it was completed by the early 1970s. And it was a marvelous thing, and its costs came in under control, etc. Second was uh, uh, that, that you just have to go back to Bell Labs. Bell Labs was the center of, it still is, their creations are, their inventions are the center of our technologies today, of China's technologies today. I mean, they, they, out, out of Bell Labs came the transistor, came the internet, came uh, the laser, came superconductivity, came information theory, even came the first evidence of uh, the Big Bang. You're Shockley and Dr. Noyce, and of course, they're gang of eight, right? They're, they're rowdy gang of eight who dared to defy corporate America and start Fairchild Semiconductor, which incidentally very successful today. I found a website just doing a little basic back of the envelope research this week on Nikolai Tesla. Now, you're a huge fan of collaboration among the cognoscenti. You also love the rogue uh, wizard. Well, he was one of those rogue wizards. In 1898, Nikolai Tesla gave a demonstration, I'm sure you're probably aware of, of a cordless, wireless, underwater submarine model in New York City. It required a rudimentary transistor. That's wild. I have not only the link, I have the diagram with schematics and the write-up, and I'm sending it right now to your email address. We need the savant autistic type to help us get the little breakthroughs, but we also need the managerial, supervisory, and creative types as well. That's absolutely right, and I think that you had both at Bell Labs, is you had a company that was a, a subsidiary of AT&T, but actually, general, uh, uh, actually Western Electric. 
and they really didn't work with budgets. I mean, they did have budgets. They, they also had as, as much time as they wanted to create these projects. I'm okay. Because we have time. Let me give another shot. Okay. <laughs> they, 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 these people were given as much time as they really wanted. Also, they basically were working not just with themselves, and there was a, you know, an incredible group within, the, within Bell Labs, but they were also working with top universities, and they were also working with the government, with DARPA. And, you know, together, our best universities, the best of uh, those people that were, you know, part of the Defense Department or the research aspect of the Defense Department, plus Bell Labs. And, you know, what they came out with was just, you know, remarkable. The Internet what, what was basically a Bell Labs invention, a Bell Labs conception. Information theory, which was developed by this uh, fellow, uh, Claude Shannon. He was totally brilliant. And he uh, published uh, what he did, I think, at Bell Labs. He published it as a master's thesis. I can't believe what it is. I, mean, I, I, he never, I don't think he ever got a doctorate. But his master's thesis was a theory of what was the theory, still used. It's a whole about bits, zeros and ones. That was Claude Shannon. You know, error correction. That came out, uh, you know, probably in the early 50s. Don't quote me on that, but it came out and it was published as a master's thesis. And he was part of the Bell Labs to theme with Shackley on, on developing the transistor. Also worked on, he got two Nobel Prizes, one for superconductivity and one for the transistor along with Shackley and somebody else. I can't remember their name. These, these inventions basically defined, you know, what our modern technology was. And I'll go one step further. The transistor, when it first came out, I still remember transistor radios. I mean, I'm an old guy. My goodness. I mean, transistor radios, they used a transistor in the back. And the transistor was large enough where you could actually, you know, I think, take it out. And, uh, to, you know, it, today, of they, they get literally 50 billion transistors in the space where they used to have one. Now, not, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that they were able to miniaturize and went up this incredible learning curve, I mean, just fantastic learning curve, was the fact that uh, the government kept ordering millions and millions of transistors. And the only way that, you know, uh, companies you mentioned, Fairchild and later Intel, were able to, you know, satisfy the demand for these transistors was, you know, going up this learning curve. They knew that the learning curve, curve existed. They knew that they could miniaturize, but they didn't really have the order flow to justify the uh, uh, work and the, uh, you know, the machine tools and everything else that it would take to do it. The government provided the inspiration for doing that. So what you had, Chris, in, in the early part of this, uh, of the post uh, Second World War period was a country that worked together. I mean, the, the, the people that were capable of great research, they were given as much time and, and, and for practical purposes, almost as much money as they needed. They weren't held to a particular schedule. It wasn't quarterly to quarterly earnings, et cetera, et cetera, as it is today. So, um, it was an entirely different world. And as a result, the United States 
I, I think during those that that period, and I you know do remember some of it. It had lasted through the 1960s by and large. I mean, toward mid 1960s, it kind of started winding down a little bit. But uh, it, it was probably the greatest generation any major economy has ever had. Any major economy has ever had. And uh, we've got to get back to that kind of mindset. We really do. Uh, and, you know, two exceptions that sort of prove the rule would be, you know, if you need, need you know, if you, if you think of successful companies in this world, I mean, two names that certainly are going to be near the top of your list are going to be Berkshire Hathaway, run by Warren Buffett, and uh, Amazon, run by Jeff Bezos. Amazon's only a 20-year-old company. Uh, but these are companies, I mean, if you look at their annual reports and Amazon's, when one of their first letters to shareholders is that we are not not going to be short-term thinking. We, we and, and Buffett says the same thing. We don't care about our quarterly results. We don't even care about our yearly results. We care about, you know, maybe six or seven years out there. I think one of the statements that Bezos made early on was that if most, if people think three in, in three-year intervals and we're willing to think in seven-year intervals, we have a much bigger edge. And he was able to convince shareholders that that's what he's doing. We've got to get back to that mindset, not just for two companies, but for the country as a whole, to think a little bit longer term. And, you know, I think we could rise again. I think it could be a very, very great country again. This is a very positive uh, way of looking at it. We don't have to enter the downward slide that great empires of the past, you know, so many come to mind and are still remarkable countries, if you will, but they're no longer empires. We don't think of, I think, Great Britain as an enormous sprawling empire anymore. We don't maybe think of the Roman Empire as an enormous empire. We just think of Rome as a remarkable city, wonderful country. Obviously, we have to settle down <laughs> as a country. I mean, we can't maintain this like to shift over, if we could, though, to the equities markets. You know, this is a clearly an important topic for our listeners, and uh, many people have watched this amazing breakout. You know, 120-year highs plus on the Dow Jones Industrials. Maybe not so much the Dow, but certainly the S&P 500 and the, the NASDAQ. Uh, these shares have registered all-time record highs in recent weeks. We had 30% above the dot-com peak for the NASDAQ. And nominal, not real, but nominal terms. We need to make that distinction. Tell us more. Well, as we were talking on the phone, uh, it came across that Trump has tariffed China another 10%. I'm not sure on what goods. Maybe it's all the other goods that he hadn't tariffed before. And gold, which was down, is now up a little bit. But the market, which was up, is now down a little bit. You know, we're fighting through right now, I think, a... Uh, uh, the, the, this sort of, you know, war between, you know, two powers, the East and the West. I don't think we're going to get to where we want to get to by tariffing uh, other countries. I just don't think it makes sense. I think it makes much more sense to cooperate. Uh, I think, you know, going back to uh, Bell Labs, going back to uh, other research facilities that we had on the West Coast that were very important in, you know, conducting the war efforts, uh, in World War II, you know, nationality, uh, things like that really didn't make any difference. Uh, we, would, we would accept other nationalities if we, you know, people passed certain uh, uh, tests that told us we could trust them, etc. And we're not doing that here. 
and uh, I'm not taking a stand against or for Trump or for anybody else, but this is no way to succeed by trying to, you know, shoot down Sputnik, so to speak. Uh, The way to succeed is not to, you know, try and cripple Huawei. The way to succeed is to build a better Huawei, and we are not doing that. And uh, just as, again, as we were talking on the phone, uh, you know, Trump all of a sudden tariffs, you know, the rest of China. And, I, you know, I didn't think those, I don't know what, to, you know, it's, it's a little bit disheartening. I mean, put it that way. It's not going to stop China, uh, but it may actually hurt America. It really may. So it's important that you share these sentiments of yours and because we have to entertain both sides. And I think there's some compelling evidence when we look back just over history, the smooth holly tariffs come to mind, right? See, on the one side of this argument, we have those sharp economists who recognize, you know, maybe this is short term really good for the stock market and maybe seems good for the economy because certain sectors benefit well. Yeah, but it also illustrates an unwillingness to work with others and and try and create a better world for the world. And and I think that this is probably, it's a very, very complex world. And I, you know, it is, it's difficult. But I I don't think tit-for-tat punishments lead to win-win situation. I mean, I I don't think you have to view view the world as zero-sum. I think you can view it as win-win. And, you know, John Nash is the Nash equilibrium. So he points out that you nearly always orchestrate. I mean, this is, the, you know, one of the first classes we took in quantitative economics was the, um, you know, this Nash equilibrium was one of the my mentors. One of my mentors, actually, his thesis. Um, at any rate, that's so essential to recognize that you can almost always orchestrate a win-win a situation if there is fair negotiation and cooperation among closely. Is there anything else on the topic you'd like to go into? Just that, you know, I think that, you know, gold makes a lot of sense. Gold also went uh, from down about $9 when we started talking to up $5 right now. And the market has, it was up about a percent. Now it's actually down. You know, I, I don't think that the, the world likes doesn't like slower growth. China doesn't have a history of backing down. I mean, right now, if you look at sort of a brief history of China over the last couple of hundred years, you see a country that's been terribly embarrassed by, you know, Japan, Korea, etc. You know, they don't want to be embarrassed again. They're not going to back down. Who comes out better in a tariff war? I really don't. I mean, both, you know, if you read this economist, we do. If you read another economist, China does. It just doesn't seem to be a good way of going about things. I think we'll get through it. <laughs> we, we, we do it. Maybe, you know, someone will wake up and realize that, you know, uh, the way to solve this problem with China is to get on our horse and start developing, you know, better chips, better this, better that. You know, China's ahead of us in quantum uh, computation right now. These tariffs, what they do is that they uh, inspire China to do everything inside. You know, in a couple of years, China won't need us for anything. I think it also inspires, as you say, desire to circumvent the dollar reserve currency. Totally, Chris. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. 
I mean, what the United States has going for it today is that it's still the world's reserve currency, which means that they can impose sanctions on lots of other countries. But, you know, if we lose that, I mean, we're, we're no longer, you know, in any way number one. You know, it, it's not, not the end of the world. I mean, you know, we can be shared number one. We can be number one in the West. We can still live a great, great life for us, for our kids, for everyone. But it's hard to do it as if your mindset, you know, is basically just fighting and just, you know, it just is not the way, you know, I don't want to sound like 60s or whatever, but this is not based on that. This is just based, at least in my opinion, on just solid economic reasoning. I think the Chinese are very willing to share and they have a lot to share. They're ahead of us in quantum technologies right now. They really are. Uh, quantum communications, they're, they're, they're probably two, two years ahead of us. They're certainly ahead of us in 5G. That's what the uh, whole Huawei thing was. And they're going to, uh, you know, employ why, uh, 5G along the uh, Belt and Road, which is going to be over half the world. It, th- this is not a good way of doing things. And uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm still hopeful that we'll wake up. I really am. And, and I'm also, you know, to some extent hopeful that I'm wrong. Maybe this will, maybe this will work. Maybe we'll end up, you know, uh, becoming number one again, you know, through a route that I don't consider, you know, a good one. Maybe I'm wrong. And I'd be very, very happy to be wrong on this one. Very, very happy. Trust me, very happy. I'm the age where I want my kids to live a good life. No, I've had my chance. So, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, at least the way I look at it right now, this does not seem like a good idea. And I just point out, you know, we had Dr. Paul Craig Roberts on the show who really corroborated your thoughts. Um, he believes that one of the reasons why research and development and obviously what economists refer to as capital investment has been so sluggish, as I think you've aptly pointed out in recent decades. What happened was it was legislation once again that Congress actually told CEOs, you cannot earn more than a million dollars. And so as a result, they turned to buybacks in order to boost their stock options of their companies and, you know, to boost the price, the share price, so that their options would appreciate accordingly. The research and development has suffered because the funds that would have been earmarked for research now go back to buying their shares. At least that's a component of what he's concerned about. No, he's right. I may disagree with him on some of the reason that that came about, but basically I totally agree with him. I mean, in this country right now, it's quarter to quarter. You know, how much does your share price go and, and how are your earnings and how is it going to affect your stock price? And you're rewarded on how your stock does over, let's say, a 12-month period. But that's a very short-term period. How long does it take to come out with, a you know, a new breakthrough kind of invention. I mean, CRISPR, they came out of Berkeley or, or MIT, depending on who you believe in the patent debate. I mean, this was a decade-long project, at least 15 years. I mean, is there anything that, that's taking 15, that we have under development now that ha, has a lifespan of 15 years of research behind it? Not that I know of, but I can tell you that China does. And I think that we're a little bit hypocritical when we, you know, not not a lot because they're, you know, like I said, I don't, I am not pro-Chinese. I don't want to live there. I don't want to live under an authoritarian state. I just don't want it. It's not my type of thing. 
But you have to say that there's a little bit of hypocrisy when we come down on them for their state-owned enterprises, which work with the government, which work with universities, and do exactly what Bell Labs was doing in this country that made this country great. China's following us. We set the example. Well, we have to set the example for ourselves. Can you give us um, your parting comments for investors? Uh, Maybe you'd like to just outline for the rest of the year where you might be constructing a portfolio. Hypothetically, of course, we don't give specific investment advice. Um, That's not our, uh, you know, our core uh, mission here. But we do like to help people get in the right direction and make sure their family is safe and productive and effective in the investment area. Uh, Maybe you'd just like to share any other topicality. I mean, I think that investors, I mean, I'm sort of speaking for myself, and again, I'm not giving anybody any advice. I think they should have at least 10% of their assets in gold. I think it's just utterly necessary at this point. In terms of the stock market, we've had an incredibly fractured market where, you know, you've had stocks like Facebook, Amazon, etc., just going to the moon. And, you know, it was a lot of fun for a while. I think you might see some shifts here. I think you might see investors gravitating toward inexpensive stocks, stocks that are so-called value plays. I mean, I'll just give one example, and I won't say whether I own it or recommending it or anything else, but a stock like CVS is a very interesting stock. They're trying to deal with all the vagaries of the health care system, which is a weak spot in this country, and I think that they have a very, very good plan. And they're dirt cheap, and they have a yield. And, you know, one thing that is nice about the stock market is that with bonds yielding less than 2%, uh, you could find many, many stocks that are yielding, you know, 4, 5, even greater percentages. And some of them are, you know, blue chips in the energy patch. You know, I gravitate toward, I gravitate right now, and I, for, for most of this market, I was not. But now I'm gravitating toward what I would call these so-called value plays, the banks, Bank America. They have a decent yield. They're buying back their own shares. I know that's a bad thing long term, but banks are not where, where the inventions are. You're going to find the inventions. So I, I think it's okay. They have decent yields, etc. The airlines are, are, I think, you know, another area where they rationalize the entire airline industry over the past 10 or 15 years. There are a few dominant players like Delta, UAL, etc. I think that's an interesting place to look. So basically, I've kind of done, you know, in my, my publication right now, The Complete Investor, I basically am focusing ever more on stocks that don't have super high PEs, stocks that are not going to get, you know, incredibly frothy if this market goes up. And I think the market will go higher, incidentally. I do. But I'm focusing on, you know, the sort of value sector, which is so dramatically, I mean, the word dramatic doesn't really capture it, but it's so dramatically undervalued relative to the rest of the market. And you can, if you look in that sector, and I think I hopefully have given a few ideas, you, you will find stocks that not only cheap by, you know, PE metrics, book value metrics, any metric you want, but also pay you a decent income and uh, a growing income in many, many cases. Uh, even some of the drug companies are fairly good as far as that goes. That's sort of what I would look, but 
you know, at least for me, I definitely would have some money invested in, in gold. We just wanted to thank you so much for your time and looking forward to more about the recovery and the new upcoming bestseller, which we know it will be. I hope it helps at least one person, and then I'll feel like I did something. You know, it's always great talking with you, and uh, I had a ball. I'm sure our listeners will feel that enthusiasm. Let's hope that it does help a bunch of folks today. And let's talk soon. Okay, great, Chris. I always love talking to you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion. By 2021, Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's shareholders. Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, many jewelry. Gold Seek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. This is Robert Ian with GoldSeek.com Radio.
When I was a young man in my early teens, starting my career out as a professional magician, I really lucked out in that one of the top magic instructors in the U.S. lived an hour from my home in the Midwest. At that point in time, the mid-1970s, you either had to live in Los Angeles or New York to have access to an equivalent brain trust. He became an invaluable friend and colleague who has and continues to challenge my thought processes throughout the decades. One of the early pieces of wisdom he shared with me as a young man was not to become too worried about a magic secret that someone might discover or figure out. Because in all likelihood, they wouldn't use it or do anything about it anyway. And even if they did know how something worked, or thought they knew, the technique or principle could easily be disguised, even just slightly, and it would still fool them. The phrase he coined is one I use to this day, and that is, It's the only secret you can give away, and it's still a secret. You might know something, but unless you do something with that knowledge, it's the equivalent of having that knowledge or know-how remain a secret. It applies to many things in life. The self-help book that gives you a roadmap to success if only you do the things that are laid out. Knowing something and doing something are two completely different things. It applies to sales. If you only have one or two qualified prospects in your pipeline, each of them has an enormous amount of leverage on your potential to close the sale and achieve success. But if you have 10 or 20 or 100 qualified prospects in your pipeline at any given time, your opportunity for success increases exponentially. But how many salespeople do you know that actually have 100 qualified prospects at any given time? Very few. Again, it's the only secret You can give away, and it's still a secret. It applies to owning gold, eliminating debt, and living life on purpose as much as you can instead of by default. Now, some have asserted this following quote, attributed to Thomas Jefferson, was never actually said by Jefferson but is instead a retro quote, which is a quote attributed to a figure in history to make a current-day point. Regardless of its origin, its content is what matters here, because this knowledge or point of view is also one of those secrets you can give away, and it's still a secret. The quote reads as follows... I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. 
if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. That quote is often heard, acknowledged, forgotten, and then people forget that they forgot. And it creates a type of amnesia that creates inaction. Which is why there are so many secrets that are given away each day and still remain a secret. Because no one, including dare I say, you, actually does anything about it. But maybe I'm wrong on that point. Maybe you have or will do something about it, as it relates to you, your family, your situation, your happiness, and your life. Most of us don't change the world overnight, but we can change ourselves a little bit at a time. And through that process, we do, in fact, often end up changing the world, one piece at a time. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.